In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I want to pose a question to you. Hmm, okay. This came up in a recent sort of icebreakery type thing we do at work. Okay. So when we come up, when a new employee joins our team, we do like a little meet the new person over Zoom. Uh huh. Since we're, you know, remote, most of us. Yeah. And everybody has to come up with a question for the new person. And like the rule is you ask the question after they answer, you have to give your answer to the question too. And then, you know, you go around. Oh, so like you'd be like, what's your favorite candy? And they'd say Snickers and you'd go like, me, I love Baby Ruth. And exactly. then the next person goes, okay. Yeah, so it's a little bit less formal or like annoying than some icebreaker things. Yeah. And we can ask literally whatever we want. Our manager likes us to catch the person off guard, <laughs> 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 which is super fun. Um, so here was my question I asked and I thought it would be fun to ask you too. Oh, okay. So I asked in any genre of movie, to, mm-hmm. For this question, but for our purposes, I'm going to do, if you could be any character, sort of archetype, in mm-hmm. a true crime slash mystery movie or TV show, mm. who would you be? So do I have to pick, like, like Tony Collette from Unforgiven, or can I pick, like, a detective? Like, how specific do I have to be? You could be as specific as you want. I was thinking generally, but if you had an idea of someone specific, you can totally do that, too. Okay, anything related to true crime, then? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the only good choice is, like... Well, no, I guess there's a lot of options. Okay, let me take that back. I feel like my first inclination was to say, like, detective, Mm because I enjoy the detection aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe, like, some kind of expert witness consultant Mm -hmm. type thing, so that I'm not having to, like, (laughs) you know, track down murderers and things like that. I'm literally just having to give my opinion. I actually could see you in that role. That's that's totally where I could see you being. What about you? I would be peripherally related to the uh, victim or survivor of the crime. <laughs> okay. And I would be the person who had a lot of information they really wanted to share, like the neighbor, <laughs> the annoying neighbor, or like the the sort of close work friends. But no one would take me seriously because I'm so outrageous. You would literally be the person who's like, her smile did not light up a room. Don't lie. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would be the person that would be like, Dateline contact me when you make an episode about this because i have a lot to say (laughs) oh my god that is funny so was that the question you asked in your team meeting yeah i asked but i said like you know any pick a genre of movie that you would be in and what archetype would you be in it did they pick a superhero honestly i think they picked like a family a family man and like a a comedy that's so boring hey listen everybody's got their something okay all right (laughs) I would like to present to for open discussion yet again, Grape Nuts. <laughs> I can't believe you're still on this Grape Nuts kick. Well, here's why. Number one, I, I get messages and texts from people who are firmly on my side about Grape Nuts, but I actually just wanted to share that I, for like posting on our social media, I Googled the old advertisements for Grape Nuts. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was just that one that we talked about that I texted you of the box with muscly arms and legs. <laughs> yeah. But there's a bunch of, like, really old Grape Nuts 
uh, advertising, and I kind of love them all. So, uh, hey, if you're a Grape Nuts lover or hater, go go look at those, because they're pretty amazing. I imagine that all of the advertisements for Grape Nuts are only from the past. <laughs> My theory is that, like your brother has said, it's like chipping off a mountain with uh-huh. like an ice ray. <laughs> Uh-huh. And I think that they had a mountain, they chipped it all off, they're keeping all of these grape nuts, or whatever they're calling them, in a, like, warehouse, and they're just boxing mm. what they have left. And there's plenty, because, you know, they're not flying off the shelves, I imagine. You are so nasty. There are so many times I've gone to the grocery <laughs> store, and the grape nuts have been sold out, so. Okay, well, you know what, I'm gonna, one of these days, I will try grape nuts, but I will wait until I can film it, because I feel like this would be a great moment to share with you and maybe listeners. <laughs> oh, for sure. I would like to be there for the preparation as well. Well, you might have to be, because it seems yeah. like there's specific instructions to not only make it palatable, <laughs> but edible whatsoever. So, Oh, boy. Okay, well, that's all I had to say about grape nuts. But the second thing, so you know how we've had a list going for a while, because mm. we took a little break. We're working our way through that list, and so this is from easily a month and a half ago, but I would like you to share with the listeners your story of how you broke your foot. <laughs> I have seen this on our list, and I was just waiting for this to come up. Um, yeah, so I have, for some reason, have had many foot, ankle, leg-related injuries over the past decade. That's true, life. now that I think about that. I don't know why, but... Definitely the most memorable, I don't know, there's two memorable ones. One would be that car accident. Yeah. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> the other one, and my favorite one, is I would say 10 years ago, maybe eight, eight to 10 years ago, a group mm-hmm. of us went to visit a town in Florida called mm-hmm. Titusville. Was that the destination or somewhere along the way? It was the destination. We, one of us had a family member that had a house there. So it was like, oh, let's go to Florida and, and spend some time just right. on vacation. And Titusville really doesn't have, no offense, Titusville, there's not a lot there to do. Um, okay. I think they have a NASA museum of some type. Okay. And I think on the fourth or fifth day of our, like, six-day trip, of course, like, towards the end, we wanted to do, like, a karaoke bar-type situation. hmm We go to this place It was very... Mm, I'll use the word seedy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And uh, full disclosure, I I had already been drinking quite a bit before we got there. Uh, It was vacation. We were on the beach drinking. I was drinking a lot. So by the time we were actually going to the bar, I was not driving. Uh Um, I had quite a few drinks. And then we Uh get to the bar, and the first thing I did was order a drink. And, uh... (laughs) I didn't know this at the time, but they had a deal, which the bartender told us after I'd gotten a drink, called Kill the Keg. Okay. Where you get, like, unlimited of some kind of crappy beer for the whole night for, like, one low price. And you could just keep refilling your pitcher. So we're like, oh, sure. So we did that. So needless to say, by the time karaoke time came around, I was good and slushed. Yeah, yeah. It was a really low-energy crowd for a while. (laughs) And um, we were kind of feeling like, "Mm, we're not really fitting in here. But But you were ready to get the party started. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, another group came in that was a little bit like us, and they were having fun, and we were the energy was great, drinking more, having a great time, as naturally one would. I went to the bathroom, 
And I heard from while I was in the restroom, someone started doing Love Shack. I mean, <laughs> clearly I was excited. Out of control excited. I just wanted to get out there on the floor it. and experience it before Tin Roof rusted. <laughs> okay. I finished up as quickly as possible, ran out of the bathroom, and then I want to say that I'm calling it a dance floor. It was like, mm. you know, one step down from the normal yeah. floor, a very yeah. small space. Okay. I go to jump on the, da- or get on the dance floor, very excited, and I kind of like roll my ankle a little bit when I step down, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that hurt, but it really didn't feel like hardly anything. It just felt like, ah, uh, my ankle's going to be, you know, Sore. hurting yeah. me tomorrow. Continued dancing, enjoying the environment, hyping up the crowd about Love Shack. I went up and sang a song after that and ran around the bar like a lunatic. And then towards the end of the night, we're leaving. We're walking out of the bar, and I'm like, hmm, my foot kind of hurts. I think I kind of hurt my foot. And my friend, who was the driver, she was a, she's a nurse, and she was like, oh, well, you know, elevate it. You know, we'll put some ice on it when we get home. I was like, okay, get home, put the ice on it, go to bed. Wake up the next morning, go to get out of bed. My foot is purple. <laughs> Whole foot, I looked like an ogre. I couldn't believe... I didn't even know if that was a foot on my, or if it was like a slab of raw meat of some type. <laughs> I was like, what is on the end of my leg? That's not my foot. That's huge. And I go, I'm going to go get up. I could not stand up. Aww. And I'm like, what the, f- what did I do? So I hobble out. My friend takes me to the urgent care. <laughs> and we get there and the doctor goes, well, or the nurse is like, okay, the doctor's going to have to like look at the x-ray and really examine it, but. It's probably either, like, a really bad sprain or a fracture. Uh-huh. She walks out of the room. And I go, ah, oh, thank God it's not broken. Oops. And my friend goes, she just told you it, fracture. it could be sprained or fractured. And I was like, yeah, but not broken. And she goes, what do you think fracture means? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, they were right. I had fractured my, like, fifth metatarsal or whatever it is. That, and I was like, okay, how long is this going to take to heal? Like, a couple weeks? And they're like, um, probably three months. Oh, my God. They had to wrap me up in a temporary cast. Drive all. We, we had to drive a few days later all the way back up to New Jersey. I couldn't help drive at all, of course. And I had to have right. my foot up in the middle of the center console <laughs> for the entire <laughs> drive. Awful. Boy, did I, just, I learn a lesson. <laughs> I feel like if you ever need a a story that tells you about the essence of Matt, it is running to B-52's karaoke with such excitement and ferocity that you break your foot on the way. I would say almost no regrets for that. I regret (laughs) very little about that situation. I regret, you know, obviously hurting myself as much as I did, and I regret running around the bar singing Flagpole Sitta afterwards. (laughs) By Harvey Danger. <laughs> I do not even know that song. <laughs> yes, you do. It's a one-hit wonder. It's not known, not commonly known by the title. Great song. Hang on one second. You'll know it. As soon as you play it, you'll know it. Oh, my God. That song? <laughs> I love that song. I hate that song. Get out of town. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I just wanted you to share that story. I love it. Um, I don't have a lot to share this week. I just wanted to share... With you and listeners, I have almost fully caught up on Sinisterhood in Ugh. in the course of the past few weeks. 
I might be I, I might be behind you at this point because I think it's been a couple of weeks since I've been able to listen to an episode and I think I'm not current. You're I'm not current either. I'm I'm still in 2020 episodes. So you're okay, you're probably okay. ahead of me, but I have just I've gone through like 80 something episodes. I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> I congratulations. I'm so I love them so much and Yeah, they're great. I really identify with both of them a lot, but Christy I'm totally a Christie between the two of them. <laughs> Big fan. And yeah, I listened to all of the recommended episodes that you've recommended before, the Mandela Effect episode, the mm-hmm. Kennedy episodes. I feel like I'm fully up to date. <laughs> so and if you're uh, if you're a Christie, does that make me Heather? Well, I mean, we could both, we can embrace the duality and hold both things if we would like, but... Uh, <laughs> there could be multiple truths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to echo your continued support of Sinisterhood and just tell everyone, if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's got something for everybody and it's it's just excellent. Yeah, good quality family fun. Mm-hmm. And another recommendation real quick that we've just, I've just started watching at the behest of Davey, my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Love on the Spectrum on Netflix. We just finished both the first and the second season last weekend. Oh my god, how timely. I loved it. I cry every episode in just yeah. the most beautiful way. It's just, yeah. you know, it's about people on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum, and finding love. And it just is so honest and real. And it's inspiring to see people who just are so honest and so without any of the social nonsense that we all worry so much about. Yeah, it was interesting to kind of watch. Like, there's a, a like, clarity of naming what is happening in the moment that mm-hmm. a lot of these, like, a behavior that a lot of these people did of, like, saying what is happening currently in a way that I was like, if everybody did that, it would be much healthier for everyone. Yeah, it's, we <laughs> were know? just saying the same thing. Like, we, there are very, they, ha- on the show at least, they happen to be very blunt and just say, mm-hmm. like, what's going on. But it's not in an, any sort of offensive way or, no. like, there's no cruelty behind anything they say and like no. like you said i think that's perfect world there's just a clarity of focus and mind for for the way they speak and for people to say that they have issues dealing with social interactions like you said mm-hmm. if everybody were just more like these folks there would be so much less bullshit and nonsense between people yes, in the world and sure. i just yeah. feel like everyone can learn something from from these people who were brave enough to share their journeys yeah great feel good show and that's all i got are you ready for I'm, the episode i'm as ready as i can be okay well i'm the episode recapper this time it's season three of law and order episode five it is called wedded bliss we open on a speedboat, speeding along in the water by, like, a pier area. (laughs) Uh, And an old man yells, he's fishing, you're scaring my dinner away, go play somewhere else. And then he's, like, reeling in his fishing line, and he's, like, fighting really hard and, like, struggling. (laughs) And this was the most unbelievable thing I could imagine. He literally pulls up a woman's body. Yeah, That line would have broken. (laughs) There's For not real. a chance. He I mean, probably I guess, couldn't even you know, get a trout. I know so little about fishing, but I guess I've seen people like shark fish with for sharks and stuff, and I guess that's probably pretty heavy. It didn't look like a shark fisherman or anything like that. It looked like it just certainly a didn't standard fishing line. Yeah, 
<laughs> so the woman's body, she appears to be like handcuffed behind her back. And Logan and the other police arrive, and one of them describes her as a, quote, floater. Okay? Okay. Uh, she was weighted down with concrete blocks and had her hands tied behind her back, and she had a, a lamp cord around her neck. So maybe she was strangled and then tossed in the river? We're, we'll find out. One of the officers at the scene says that she probably, quote, never saw her sweet 16 when Logan asks how old he thinks she is. And, of course, you know, they do the typical law and order thing of the cop is like, that's my child's age. Mm -hmm. Yes, we know. We got it. (laughs) So Logan remembers a connection to a similar case, but he says that this one isn't a professional job. Like, this doesn't appear to be have... uh, They don't say it, but I assume they're alluding to organized crime. Like, they say, our friends in silk suits weight them down so they never come up. That's what they're saying, right? I think so, because, you know, the... the concrete block type situation yeah always associated with that sleeping with the fishes blah blah blah. yes yeah so we cut to the title sequence and i had a little bit of time full regular law and order episode not like svu the the quicker title title (laughs) sequence i had a little bit of time i decided to learn how to solve a rubik's cube and i practiced and practiced and practiced and now i can do it in other under 30 seconds and by the time I, you know, learned how to do that and train myself, we were back with the episode. Were you inspired by a love on the spectrum to do the Rubik's Cube? You know, that was amazing how <sighs> fast he did that. Incredible. So back at the station, Soretta says that there have been, uh, so they identify the woman as a Latina woman, and they say there have been 11 missing Latina women in the, I guess, recent past. Uh, but seven have already been identified, and the descript- or this woman, this new body that they found, doesn't match the description of any of the other four missing women. So Cragen tells Logan and Soretta to go. T- he's like, there's this new science. Go talk to this specialist. She can take a human skull and create an image of what the face would have looked like pre-decomposition. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, this <laughs> did not look like science to me. So <laughs> no. I'll get there. So... He also says, like, if you're going to go and have, uh, you know, have her skull, you know, recreated so that we can see what her face would have looked like. Also, you know, the the body that was found from that other crime that Logan had remembered, go and dig up that person's skull and have them identify both. So we cut to the forensics laboratory and we meet the forensic expert, who is the person who can reconstruct faces from skulls. Her hair is clearly inspired by Toad from Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) And she opens her scene by, like, quoting Einstein at Logan and Soretta. Why? I, I think that was honestly just a moment where the writers were like, ooh, yes, Einstein. Let's smart. bring that in. She's I think it was probably smart. to, like, give her credibility, right? Like, her science is real because she's quoting Einstein. So she shows them how they come up, like, the science of how they come up with the face. <laughs> this, you know, again, we're in 1992, mm-hmm. 91 at this point. Mm-hmm. So when they when she's like, take a look, we cut to the computer, and of course it's like the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, mm-hmm. but on the screen is what looks like a Word document, mm-hmm. and the guy clicks one button, and you just see like the image of a face load from like top to bottom like you were on dial-up internet. It was like he was playing Mario Paint. All I could think about <laughs> was Kelly Rowland texting with Microsoft Excel <laughs> when I saw that scene. It was... Oh, ridiculous. What music video is that, by the way? Uh, that's, um, 
No matter what I do, all I think about, think is, about you. is you. What's that song? Okay, great. So everybody, if you haven't seen that video, Kelly Rowland is sending text messages via her mobile device. I think it's probably like a, whatever the like first early texting things were, Mm -hmm. but it's literally Microsoft Excel that's on her screen. And she's like, LOL, talk to you soon. Kissy face on Microsoft Excel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So back to Law & Order. Logan asks the forensic expert how accurate these renderings would be that she comes up with. And she says, we'll know when someone identifies him. That's not very helpful. Hmm. The then they're still in here with the forensic expert and the phone rings, but rather than it being a regular telephone sound, it's like somebody just started playing a dial-up modem and then they pick up the phone and that is never explained why it is not in any way a telephone sound that happens. <laughs> So the call, weirdly, is actually for Logan and Soretta, and it's the missing persons department who they go to see, and that person tells them that based on the MO from the most recent discoveries, there is another body with a similar MO. So this person, they've been able to identify this third body, and he was a building inspector who inspected what they call throughout the episode sweatshops. Mm -hmm. And so Logan and Soretta go talk to the lead detective on that case and ask, you know, about the inspector and see, like, did he maybe try to close down the wrong business? And, you know, he maybe got murdered by whoever's business he was trying to shut down. And the cop said that he, quote, couldn't close a closet. So apparently he wasn't a very good inspector. (laughs) I guess that's what they're saying. (laughs) So Logan, by the way, there are so many awful things that they say in this episode. Yeah. So Logan and Soretta think that perhaps the the two most recent bodies that they have found, which they have identified as Latinx teenagers, might have worked in one of the sweatshops And the reason Logan says that is gross, Mm -hmm. but they decide to kind of like look into this garment industry angle. So they, they had cuts all over their hands when they found them and they're like, oh, maybe that's from working in, you know, garment manufacturing. So they go back to the forensic person who had done the facial reconstruction work (laughs) because she's finally like now got the face for the woman's body that they found. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) This is it is so poorly drawn. It looked more like a cave woman to me than an actual like human being. It was. I guess so... cave people are human beings, but uh, <laughs> you know, it looked very strange. It was somewhere on the evolution chart in the middle. Yes. Um, and yes. again, the quote unquote. I love that you call it a laboratory before because it's really like <laughs> a room with a big computer in it, and she's holding a skull in her hand. Like she's in the Hamlet. middle of a Shakespeare <laughs> production, and she's like, "Yeah, just move it a little to the left, two centimeters to the left." And the guy, oh, yeah. just like, goes, doo, 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 doo. and she's like, "Perfect, that's it, perfect." I, and I, I think, <laughs> go ahead. I couldn't even believe it. I was like, "What program is this that they're using?" Well, number one, again, I it looked like either Word or Microsoft Paint. He used like a lasso tool to like pick the eyeball and move it to two centimeters to the left. But also she was using like a pair of calipers to like measure the mm-hmm. distance between the pupils, holding it up to the computer screen. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like, that's not... Science. It's <laughs> No, I, it was, no, I just couldn't even believe it. Maybe anyway. Clippy, Clippy helped him out. <gasps> Maybe. I forgot about Clippy. 
Okay, she tells Logan and Soretta that based on the structure of these folks' skulls, that she thinks that both of them are likely Mexican. And Logan remembers that the inspector's last shop was in the Bronx, which he refers to as, quote, our newest immigrant paradise. Mm-hmm. <sighs> they head down there and they're asking folks, they're showing the photos, <laughs> which I'm surprised people aren't running in fear, <laughs> and asking if anybody knows these people. And nobody's nobody really knows them, but they're like, oh, you know, the kids in this neighborhood often spend time at this, like, club. It's like a pool hall. And so they go over there to show the pictures around, <laughs> scare the general public, and <laughs> see if anybody recognizes them. Happy Halloween. Right. Logan, f- for no apparent character development reason, is very irate in this episode and flies off the handle, handle multiple times. Yeah. He walks into this club and within 30 seconds is, like, shoving a guy and slapping him on the back of the head while he's questioning him. The owner of the club... What? I would call this what I have on my list as a Logan mouth drop moment. Yeah. He grabs the guy by the arm and says, I'm going to slap that haircut off your head or something, and then proceeds to smack him in the head. Yeah. For no reason. He warned him. (laughs) He told him he was going to slap him, and then he did. Without, well, he warned him and did it simultaneously. <laughs> yes, I'm going to slap you. Bam. <laughs> so on the street, oh, anyway, sorry. The owner of the club comes over. His name is Rudy something or other, but he doesn't know these two people either. So on the street, they're appearing. <laughs> Logan and Soretta stop for a little break, and they get themselves some little snow cones. And Soretta chastises Logan for getting too rough with that guy in the pool hall. And Logan says, this case is pushing my buttons. And Soretta's response is, the next button it could press is the civilian review board, essentially telling Logan to not be an abusive dick. Yeah, maybe, you know, if if you're a uh, person who is prone to having their buttons pushed and then that makes you uh, physically violent with people, maybe pursue a different career. Yeah, maybe law enforcement where you have a gun isn't the right career choice for you Mm. if you can't control your emotions. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so they find, finally, like, ask somebody on the street who's, like, a flower vendor, and he says, like, oh, yeah, I know these people. It's Eduardo and his cousin Maria. And he's like, what happened to them? And they ask, like, what, tell us about Eduardo and Maria. Like, how did you know them? And he says that they worked nearby making dresses. And they go to that building, but it's been, like, shut down and abandoned. So they know that this is one of the buildings that the inspector who was killed was inspecting just before he was killed. (laughs) I could have phrased that a lot more clearly. (laughs) And also Eduardo and Maria, the other two victims, worked there. So we've got three connections to this this former garment construction building that's now, now abandoned. So they head inside the abandoned building to start looking around, and we get a lot of, like, squeaking rat sound effects and, like, pigeons cooing to, like, really tell us it's abandoned. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And they go to, like, a back room, and in that back room, they see a mattress stained with blood and a pair of handcuffs, which Logan picks up with a pen. So I get credit for a uh, piece of evidence picked up with a pen. Mm, Very well done. Thank you. I have to say, so, for someone who, uh, for a illegal operation, potentially, like, picking up and, and leaving and trying to be discreet about it, you know, yeah. they've really left a whole bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of, a bunch of clues around. 
Right. Like, if you were going to clear everything out, wouldn't you think you would get rid of the blood-soaked mattress and the handcuffs? Yeah, maybe instead of the sewing machines. (laughs) (laughs) So they get a police squad down to examine the scene, and Cragen comes with them and asks Logan, like, what do we think was happening here? Like, uh, you know, why are there handcuffs? And he thinks that maybe that people were being enslaved and, like, forced to work and being held prisoner. And Logan's response is, handcuffs. And they weren't playing cops and robbers. Okay. And Cragen's response is that he would expect this in Texas, but not New York. Why? It's never explained. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) They find a label for the clothes that had been made in the building and find that it was like wedding dresses. And so they go to a place with wedding dresses nearby. I'm not sure how or why they're talking to this person, but he essentially tells them like, oh yeah, I recognize this tag. It's made by such and such company. And they moved from that abandoned building to a new building in the Bronx. So Logan and Soretta head head to that new building and they talk to the owners, who is a woman all in leopard print and her husband, who Mm -hmm. says almost nothing the entire episode. Um, And they are the Drakes, Mr. and Mrs. Drake. And she's like, oh, no, like, we treat all of our workers like family. They, like, work hard because they appreciate everything we give them, blah, blah, blah. By the way, have you ever worked for a single company where they describe themselves like a family that isn't, like, wildly inappropriate and abusive? A hundred percent. I mean, honestly. Really, really and truly, I feel like every company that's like, we're like a family just means we're going to take advantage of you. Exactly. And you have to take it because we're family. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The Drakes say that they don't recognize the people in the photos. And they say multiple other contractors had been in that abandoned building since they had left. So they're like, it's probably one of them. Like, we don't, it's not us. Bye-bye. So back at the station, Logan and Soretta discover that they have a DNA match between Maria, the woman found in the river, and the blood on the mattress in the abandoned building. So not only did she work in that building, it's likely that she was killed or or assaulted in some way in that building. Mm -hmm. So Logan and Soretta decide to investigate the financials of the Drakes, and when they do, they find payment for a liquor license, which they think is weird because they're a garment manufacturer, so why would they be paying for a liquor license? And we see that the liquor license is actually for that pool hall that we were in earlier. This next scene is weirdly convoluted, but I think what we're meant to learn is that the owner of the pool hall used to work for the Drakes, and that he says, like, oh yeah, I worked harder than everyone else, they're very generous, and so when I wanted to open this pool hall, they paid for my liquor license, like, they were helping me out. Back on the street, Logan and Soretta, you know, call from a payphone, run a background check on Rudy, who is the pool hall owner, and they find out that he had previously been arrested for stabbing someone with a knife— when and that arrest occurred that or rather that assault occurred when he was guarding the door to a former location owned by the drakes where they were operating a sweatshop so he like defended discovery of the drakes terrible business practices by stabbing someone oh great okay so for some reason now, they go and Logan and Soretta try to like track down the sales of these handcuffs because they're like a specific brand. And they go to a, a nearby store that sells this brand of handcuffs. The owner says some awful things about Latinx people that I will not repeat. 
But he does rec- say he sold some handcuffs to Rudy, who is the pool hall owner, and he sold them maybe a dozen pairs, uh, which, you know, is kind of suspicious. Why does a random civilian need 12 pairs of, like, legit handcuffs? I mean, you know, he could have been kinky. But 12 pairs? Are you having sex with a centipede? <laughs> <laughs> sex with a centipede. There's the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so... Logan go. They decide to you know go arrest Rudy at this point because they've got connecting him to the scene. Uh, he knows the people. He lied about knowing the people. He's got an assault thing, and he bought the handcuffs that were found at the scene and on the bodies of the, that they had recovered so far. Mm-hmm. So when they go to arrest him, Logan again flies off the handle and immediately starts choking Rudy and pushing him around because Logan's favorite thing to do apparently is abuse his power as a police officer. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to the pretrial hearing, and both the Drakes and Rudy are being charged with multiple charges of murder and kidnapping, and basically, at this point, everybody pleads not guilty, and the Drakes lawyer says that they have, they, like, maybe they knew about these things, but it's because they, they went along with them because Rudy was so scary to them. He's a career criminal who had, like, taken advantage of these kind business owners. So now we're on the order side, and Robinette and Stone go to talk to the Drakes in prison and try to convince them to take a plea and roll on Rudy as the person who actually killed Maria and Eduardo and the building inspector. Mm -hmm. But she says that she won't testify against a man who she brought up like her own son, which, spoiler alert, we later find out that they were sleeping together, so that's an extra creepy line that she just said. Oh god, yeah. Mr. Drake, this whole time, as I said, doesn't say much, but it sounds because it sounds like she's kind of like running the show and he's, you know, she tells him what to do. They don't end up taking a deal. But while at Rikers, Stone tells the guards, like, have the Drake's visitor list faxed to my office daily. And I just loved fax it to my office daily. (laughs) Robinette goes and talks to Mr. Drake's brother to see if he has any information on Rudy. And he tells them that Rudy had told the Drakes, like, I can get workers for you in your shop really cheap. And then says, quote, again, language I don't love, suddenly this psycho is running the company. So he, Mr. Drake's brother, is supporting the story that they were taken advantage of by this career criminal, supposedly Rudy. Mm -hmm. And then he tells them that... Again, Mrs. Drake loved Rudy a little too much, and we essentially learned that they were sleeping together, and Mr. Drake knew about it, and apparently didn't feel like he could do anything about it, because A, she runs the show, and B, he's a murderer. Right. (laughs) So, the brother says, uh, he told his brother, Mr. Drake, to turn Rudy in, but his brother's response was, if it doesn't work, I'd have trouble breathing underwater. So essentially saying, like, Rudy would kill me and dump my body in the river. So they try to get Rudy's wife, Lena, who we've seen a couple of times, incidentally, in the pool hall. They try to get her to roll on Rudy and give them some helpful information. And there's a grandmother figure in this episode who is apparently, like, she doesn't have much of a character besides, like, judging Lena and Mm -hmm. guilting her. Yeah. And they use that to their advantage later on. Did you recognize the actress who played Lena? No, she was, no, She's beautiful, but I didn't recognize her. Oh my her. god, she is gorgeous. I recognized her. I used to watch this show called The Event. It only lasted one season. 
It was okay. great. I loved it, though. It was one of those, like, oh, there's an alien race, maybe, type thing. Um, so I recognized her from that, and I looked her up. And she's apparently been in, like, a, a zillion things. Most recently, uh, she was in something called a TV show called Being Mary Jane. Huh. Lasted for, like, six years. But she's been in a ton of things. She was in Grey's Anatomy, which I know you hate. <laughs> P.S. I watched a few episodes of Grey's Anatomy at a friend's <sighs> house recently because I've never seen uh-huh. an episode. And? And, wow. I mean... It's I, bad, right? I could see why people got into it at the time. Like, oh, it's mm-hmm. got the, you know, a lot of drawing things about it, like those procedural type of, you know, ER type shows. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. wow, they really treat, uh, specifically women and queer people terribly on that show from the oh, jump. Oh, yeah. It's um, kind of like, I think I told you this. Oh, maybe I haven't. Netflix recently added a new category that I saw called retro television. Mm. Oh, I saw this on your Instagram? (laughs) Yeah, it was TV shows from when I was in high school, so that was awesome. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But one of them was, A, one was Dawson's Creek, which I never watched, but the other was Gilmore Girls. And there's a lot of things I love about Gilmore Girls, but ooh, man, is there a lot of, like, problematic racism and homophobia in that show yeah i i mean it's hard to watch shows from back then you have to watch them with a a sort of understanding of what was acceptable at at the time yeah even though it shouldn't have been to to understand how they lasted as long as they did (laughs) right exactly gray's anatomy i i'm with you (laughs) thank you good (laughs) um okay so lena we're at lena the the wife of rudy yeah Yes. So Lena tells Stone, uh, under like the watchful eye of her intimidating grandmother, Lena confesses to Stone that Rudy did kill Maria and Eduardo because they had escaped and they were going to go to the police and tell them that they were being enslaved and abused by this garment manufacturer. So in Stone's office, in a later scene when they're like actually getting her formal, I guess, that's, is that deposition? Yeah, deposition, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Or so, testimony? I don't know. No, testimony's on the stand. Whatever. Statement. Yeah, there we go. She suddenly changes her story and says that Rudy had let Eduardo and Maria go back to Mexico. Like, that was the last he saw of them. He definitely didn't kill them. So Stone gets pissed and is like, did your husband threaten you into changing your story? But she, like, sticks with her lie and says she doesn't know what happened, but Rudy definitely didn't kill them. Stone is very upset. He slams his fists on the table. And uh, then, so so essentially his case is undermined at this point. And, but they go to trial anyway. And <laughs> during the trial scene, Mrs. Drake's hair is so oh. remarkable. It, to Sculptural. me, it, yes, <laughs> it looked like a combination of if you took Margaret Thatcher's hair and then turned it into a bike helmet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the closest I can get to it. So Stone gets the Drakes and Rudy in the same room together, offers Mr. Drake an individual deal, like, hey, if you roll on these two, like, we'll give you a deal. And that upsets everybody because, you know, they're trying to get him to roll on them, like, in front of them. And so he does eventually agree and says that he'll testify against his wife and Rudy because. You know, he's been so pissed off that his wife wife was sleeping with Rudy and that he couldn't do anything about it. And so he agrees to the deal and we go back to court. On the stand, Mr. Drake says that Rudy had gotten the kids, Eduardo and Maria, and at the end of their work week, he told the Drakes, like, hey, 
don't pay them, we can just keep them prisoner and make them work for free. And they apparently were like, sounds great. So they handcuffed Eduardo and Maria to bed so that they could enslave them into working in garment manufacturing. So Stone asks, what happened to the building inspector? Tell me about that. And Mr. Drake says that the inspector came to assess the building and he discovered that back room where Maria and Eduardo were being held captive. And when he did, Rudy killed him to prevent that from going public in any way. We also learn that maybe at the same time, but it's not clear, Maria and Eduardo tried to escape, and Mr. Drake says that Rudy killed them in front of all the other workers as kind of like a see-what-happens-if-you-try-to-escape type thing. Damn. He sounds like a real charmer. I mean, he's a delight. Yeah, but the defense attorney, who, by the way, was Ira Buckman, the brother on Mad About You. Do you remember Mad About You? Oh my god, I could not figure out where I knew him from. Yes, I loved Mad About You. (laughs) I don't know how it is. Again, I haven't seen it in like 30 years, but I remember liking it back then when I was like eight. But that's, I mean, I loved Helen Hunt. I still love Helen Hunt. Yeah, yeah. So he he is the defense attorney for Rudy, and he's able to plant enough doubt in the court uh, jury's mind that like maybe Mr. Drake was the one who actually killed these people. He committed the crimes, and he's just laying it on his wife and Rudy because he's so upset that they were having an affair. So it's like enough reasonable doubt that Stone and Robinette are like, "Fuck, there we might have lost this case." So they decide to take one more shot at Lena, the wife, to give her a chance to correct her story about her husband, Rudy. And they start by going through her grandmother. Now, what happens now feels like the writers went, ooh, we are hitting our page limit and we need to wrap up this story real fast. Mm -hmm. Because there's this weird moment where the grandmother says like, oh yeah, Rudy called me one afternoon and told me to take Lena over here and something, something, I was going to take her back to my house in the Bronx. And they're like, wait, you have a house in the Bronx? And she's like, yeah, or Brooklyn. And then the next scene we get is a bunch of police officers like digging like taking a bunch of bodies out of the ground in this random backyard and we learn that that's the grandmother's house and that was a property that rudy also owned and so he had buried a bunch of bodies in her backyard very very quick i mean it was like like you said they were hitting their page limit and they're like what can we do and they really swung for the swung for the oh, fences boy. here i mean yes why? this was like the other than the uh, mafia episode from i think season one oh. this was the biggest like mass grave moment we've ever seen on the show yeah yeah totally random super random and also wouldn't you notice if your entire backyard had been dug up and like replanted uh, i would i mean hello <laughs> but hey So Stone and Schiff chat about, like, now indicting Rudy on seven charges of murder, but Schiff points out the bodies were at the grandmother's house, so it's all circumstantial evidence. You don't have anything specifically to uh, to link Rudy to these murders. And while they're talking about that, Schiff gets a phone call and says that the Brooklyn DA is trying to take the case because the bodies were found in Brooklyn, and so they're kind of like, oh no, we have to figure this out fast. So Schiff tells Stone and Robinette, make a deal with Rudy and and the wife. Like, I don't care what it is, make them a deal so we can close this case. So Stone goes and talks to the Drake's lawyer and offers them 25 years, and they begrudgingly accept. And so that's kind of like the conclusion of the case, is they're like, 25 years? And they're like, all right, sounds good. 
And then that episode basically ends uh, with Stone and Robinette outside the courthouse. We do get that courthouse steps yes. conversation about how Rudy might not live long enough to survive his sentence because people in prison don't like people who kill children. Then he says, the closing line is, essentially that he has a fancy dinner to go to next month that he bought a new suit for, and quote, I have to wonder who made it. As though, like, the moral of this whole episode is the abuse of garment workers, but they didn't really do that. They did a weird thing about murder instead. Right. Right. <laughs> very weird episode, super problematic in a lot of ways. Uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll hear what the case was that it was inspired by, and I'll get to rate this episode later. Mm. Dilemma, by the way. Do you, s- Dilemma? Is the name of the Keller oh. Rollins song. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it came to me in the middle of the episode, and <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Great job. Oy. Well, I'm excited to hear you tell me what story this is based on, if okay. it's based on any. Well... So the episode is based on just kind of a general topic, which is illegal, quote-unquote, sweatshops. Okay. But I was able to find a case that is that is post-production um, that is pretty similar. So I chose... Are you going to tell me the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory story? I, no, I thought about it. I thought about okay. it, but I, it's been done so many times so well yeah. that yeah. I was like, I would need to really find something new find something new a new angle yeah. to really do it so i found something that's more recent very recent actually okay so i'm going to tell you the story and uh most of the folks in this story are well all of them they're indian they live in india so okay. i'm doing my very best with pronunciations here okay i listened to a lot of videos so i think i got a, a good portion of them down but okay this case is going to be the story of Jay Ashri, Kati Ravol. Jay Ashri. Yes. Okay. okay, so have you heard of this at all? It's pretty recent. I, I have not. No, I don't. Well, if it's recent, I might, it might tickle some vague memories in the back of my mind. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it. It has gotten international uh, coverage, I don't think, nearly enough based on okay. what I've heard about it. But When you say recent, do you mean like within the last like two years? Yes. Okay, I think I might know this case, like, from seeing headlines, not, like, in-depth investigation into it. Yeah, I feel like you're more clued into more recent current events than I am, so I feel like <laughs> it might uh, it might spark some memories in your mind. Uh, okay, great. So, Jayashri Katirival was born in a small village in India in the year 2000, okay. and she grew up in Dindigul, which is a city in, in the Indian state of Tamil Nadu. Okay. Um, a lot of what is tied up in this case deals with the caste system in India, and I did not know a lot of information about this at all, so okay. I did as much research as I could, and I'm grossly uneducated about anything like this. So, from what I've read, and I am just saying this, I invite any listeners who know anything about this, or who hear me misspeak at all, or make any errors, please write in and point them out, because I'm trying to understand more yeah but i recognize that you know i'm a, a white guy in new jersey who doesn't really <laughs> who has a lot of privilege and not needing to understand this kind of thing but yeah, i yeah. would like to you know so yeah so from what i have researched the caste system was based on hinduism originally 
mm-hmm. and it's currently recognized and supported by police and government bodies in India, as well as smaller village councils, so really all over the place. Yeah. It separates people out by their pureness, I guess, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and ultimately, unfortunately, their desirability socially, Yeah. so to speak, and it bases its classes or, you know, levels on two concepts in Hinduism, which is karma, meaning work, mm. mm-hmm. and dharma, which in this sense means duty. Okay. P.S., so, do you remember the sitcom Dharma and Greg? Oh my god, yes. She's a Scientologist, I think. I was going to say, speaking of sitcoms that I'm sure do not hold oh, up. I'm sure. <laughs> that just is riddled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, because she's very culturally appropriated in everything, Ooh, yeah. Dharma. Yeah, yeah. So the highest levels in the caste system are, and I'm going to do my best with these pronunciations, Brahmins, which is the oh, highest yeah. mm-hmm. level, and that's yes. reserved for priests and teachers. Mm-hmm. Then right below it is Shartiyas, so okay. trying, and this was for warriors and rulers. Okay. And then on the lower tier of the two, the lower two levels are Vaishyas, which were merchants and farmers, and mm-hmm. Shudras, which were laborers. Yes. So these are the four levels of the caste system, and then outside of that, there's a caste known as Dalits. Dalits are what we're mainly going to be speaking about here. They're the lowest level, and they're excluded from the other four on most, in most ways, socially. Can I ask one question? Yeah. So, again, my knowledge on this is limited to, like, probably a few college classes I took. Um, but I seem to recall, like, maybe the lowest cast uh, category also maybe being referred to as untouchables. Yes. Did you, did you encounter that? Yes. Okay. Yes, I'm actually going to talk about that in a second, just oh, briefly. Great. So, okay, if sorry. you have more information on it, please um, uh, interject. No, don't be okay. sorry. I, I, anything you know about this, interject whenever you can. Okay. So, this lowest level of Dalits, um, there's clear separations for like the top two levels and the lower two levels, where like members of each of these castes would be separated, where they were allowed to live where they were allowed to, like, cohabitate with one another, um, where they're able to travel, even where they're able to drink water or use the bathroom. And that's just among the four other levels, not even counting the Dalits at this point. Okay. Those who were known as Dalit were excluded from all of that. They were, like, people who were just... The only jobs they could get were, like, cleaning bathrooms. Um, And the word Dalit itself is from Sanskrit, and it translates to broken or scattered. Okay. And for decades, as you said, they were known as untouchables, and not in the, like, Americanized connotation of being, like, above the law, but more, like, literally unworthy of human contact. Right. And Yeah, I think it's, like, untouchable because there's, like, perceived to be, like, a corrupting influence if you're involved with them or something like that? Exactly. Like, they're the lowest, they're not pure, they're not even part of, like, you know, the rest of the caste system. They're sort of separate, almost not even part of it at all. Right, right. They're outside of it. Yeah. And it's still a word that's used to this day, but it seems to be kind of reclaimed in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of similarly, I, I would equate it similarly to the word queer for... LGBTQ folks. Oh, like being reclaimed? Yeah, like a word that it's it has terrible 
roots, but yeah. they the people who identify as Dali, it's it's a word they use for themselves. To self identify. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So again, a lot of what we talk about in this story is going to focus on people who identify as Dalit. Okay. So according to an article from the BBC, in 1950, independent India banned discrimination based on caste. But we will see that this is not something that's actively enforced, particularly yeah. when it comes to women. Right. That's kind of like, I, I mean, they always talk about how it takes culture to catch up with law a lot mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. And so we saw that here with, you know, desegregation and stuff like that. Like it, it didn't end prejudice. You see so much like mirrors, yeah. so much is mirrored with that. Yeah. So in Tamil Nadu, the population of Dalit folks is around 20%. And there are a lot of classifications within this group, but I, I couldn't really, I mean, I would have been here for hours if I really went into yeah. everything. So it seems like most of the differences between the classification of folks who identify as Dalit are political or geographical. Um, and that also makes it difficult for them to get any sort of political power or anyone okay. in sort of higher levels of government in order to really make anything move forward for them because they're so fragmented as a group Okay, that who they vote for and who they're able to like get behind, it's really hard for them to get any sort of access to positive change. Positions of power. Exactly. Okay. So Jayashray's family, they're all considered Dalit. And she grew up pretty humbly and with, you know, high aspirations of accessing a college education and inspiring change within and for her community. So at age 18, in 2018, she joined the workforce, as many women do, oftentimes much earlier, because she had to support herself through college if she wanted to go. She began pursuing a Bachelor of Arts in Tamil, um, which is the state that she lives in. Mm -hmm. And she started working evenings to support herself, as she then later enrolled in a Master of Arts program at a college in a town nearby called Palani. Okay. Um, and this is a quote. Jayashri was a very promising student, and her professor had promised her a job at the college when she completed her course. This mm -hmm. is according to her mother. And I'm, I'm, I've heard the name spoken a lot, but so quickly. Mathu Lakshmi Kathi Ravel. That's the name of her mother. Okay. For my purposes, in order to not be offensive and wrong, I'm just going to refer to her as her mother for the most okay. of this. So that's the quote from her mother. And her mother also worked with her at the same factory, um, which I'll get into in a little bit, for about two years. Okay. So this factory that she entered the workforce in in 2018, it's owned by Nachi Apparel, and they supply through Eastman Exports clothing to H&M. Yeah. Eastman Exports is the fourth largest garment export company in India, and when the COVID-19 lockdown happened, the factory was forced to close. So at that point, Jayashri's mother left the business and began working someplace else, and as soon as they opened back up, Jayashri returned to work, and she often was taking shifts from around 4.30 p.m. to 1 a.m., yeah. while still pursuing her education at the same time. So really hardworking girl, and her mother didn't return to the job, and her father and her generally were the only, I think her father and her were the only two people in the family who were working at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Jayashree was generally described as quiet, sort of timid, but she always spoke up for what she believed in. And as we know, she was striving for greatness. And no matter what job she had, she wanted to be excellent at it. So at work, she didn't cause a fuss necessarily, but if she ever saw something that was sort of out of line or wrong or incorrect, she would say something to her superiors. One of the supervisors, and I'm going to try this name because I haven't heard it spoken. I'm going to say Tangadurai. Okay. He had not taken kindly to any of the concerns that she was bringing up. According to several of the workers there, he had been harassing Jayashri pretty regularly throughout her tenure at this company. Mm -hmm. And even her mother, during the two years her mother worked there with her, she had noticed issues with this guy as well. She had even been told by him once, quote, your daughter is giving complaints in high places. Tell her to cool down. Mm -hmm. So Jayashri's mother had often said, you know, if you have an issue working here, you know, you don't have to work there anymore. We could find a different job. You can focus on your studies. But um, Jayashri needed to help support the family, especially after COVID-19 happened. After a while, Jayashri started bringing up complaints about faulty products at the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when she brought these concerns up to management, it really seemed to infuriate the supervisor, Tango Durai, who we spoke about earlier, he told her to, like, keep it to herself, and the harassment continued. What Jayashree's mother did not know, but most of her coworkers knew, was that the harassment was sexual in nature. Mm-hmm. On January 1st, 2021, she left for work at her scheduled time, and she had spoken to her mother after being at work for a few hours around 9.30 p.m. Her mother had called her, or she had called her mother, and her mother reports, quote, she sounded dull and said that it was because she had gotten wet in the rain and was feeling cold. I could also hear a male voice behind her saying, Pesu, Pesu, which means talk, talk. Hmm. And when I asked her who that was, she said it was nothing and that she was in the factory canteen and she didn't respond to any calls after that. Hmm. So later reports would show that she actually left her job at around 7.20 p.m. on special permission, quote unquote. And no one had seen her at the factory since then, despite her mom speaking to her at 930. Mm-hmm. Her family became concerned because she hadn't returned home from work by 2 a.m. Remember, she worked usually till about 1.30. Right. And they lodged a complaint with the Vadimurai police station, who did not issue a first information report, which I imagine is similar to a um, missing persons report. Okay. And this is common practice that you have to issue a FIR. It's mandated by the law since 2014, but for some reason, they didn't. Hmm. It would be four days until on January 5th, when police would come upon Jayashri's body Hmm. 50 kilometers from the factory in a nearby village. Hmm. It did not take long for the family to name a suspect, being her supervisor, Tanga Durai, um, the guy who was sexually harassing her at work? Yes. Yeah. They knew he was problematic to her at work. They didn't know how bad it was. But okay. they also knew that he was constantly calling her under the guise of, like, come to work and, and take extra hours or issues like that. And like I said, Jayashri's mother worked with him at the company in a different department mm-hmm. and had noticed, mm-hmm. like, he had made comments to her about her daughter. So immediately that's who they went with. Okay. On January 8th, Tango Durai and someone named Jagannathan, they were arrested 
for the murder. Mm-hmm. The second man uh, that I mentioned, Jake Anathan, they mentioned him in a lot of the articles, but I didn't see a lot of information. It looks like he was someone that participated or allegedly participated. But okay. while in police custody, Tanger Durai does confess to the murder and abduction. Um, and we'll, mm. we'll get into that in a second, what he says. Now, as for what ends up happening to Tanger Durai, all the articles I read basically just said that he was charged with murder and abduction. But I don't know what ends up happening to him, to be honest. It's kind of strange to me you can't find that information. Or I couldn't find that information. But we'll we'll get to that. Okay. (laughs) According to the police report, quote, The doctors who did the postmortem mentioned verbally that appears Jay Ashri was strangulated and killed. Hmm. Um, Even though this is stated in the police report... The actual postmortem report itself mysteriously does not include this information. Hmm. After a full investigation, it has been found, however, that she was raped, poisoned, and strangled at the hands of her supervisor. God. She was just 21 years old. According to him, as reported by police, quote, As she worked there at Natchi Apparel, she, became, she came to know Tanga Durai of the Gounder community, and both of them developed a relationship. Over a period, Jayashri started harassing Tangadurai to marry her and thinking that if she continued to live, it would cause him all kinds of trouble. He decided to kill her with the help of Jaganathan. Jaganathan. <laughs> he fooled her, saying he would marry her on January 1st and asked her to come to Otankratum okay. by 8 p.m. that night. So that is his account of what happened and what Mm. the police put out as well. This account will later be echoed by another organization, which I'll touch on as well, but it's been disputed by troves of her co-workers, friends, and family, many of which belong to the Delete community as well. Okay. And this cast is considered lower than the Gounder community, which is mentioned in that report. Um, Mm -hmm. That's where Tango Durai belongs. Okay. And they're considered, like, high class. So her her boss, who is sexually harassing her, is a member of a, like, category of the caste system that is higher than she was. Correct. Okay. And right. that is, like, potentially what all kinds of trouble means in that previous quote. Like, if he was seen with her, right, that would cause all sorts of trouble. That's what, you know, according to him. Okay. After her murder, it took weeks to even convince government agencies and police that the murder should be investigated seriously at all. (laughs) And by all accounts, the crime was caste-based. Okay. Her father echoes this concern about it being about the caste system. He says, quote, Caste was the main reason. Why else would he have gone to the extent of killing her? Within a matter of one month after Jayashri complained about him regarding faulty pieces coming into the factory line, he seems to have schemed to use her and finish her. We hear now that many workers in the factory who worked under him had stopped going to work because of the way he would be abusing them. Mm. So, all of this, the evidence and testimony of other people who were directly related, conflicts what he says about their quote-unquote relationship. Okay. Despite Nachi Apparel coming under scrutiny for sexual harassment and being investigated by Eastman Exports... Mm-hmm. They report there were no reports of sexual harassment by Jayashri against anybody, mm. or really by any women there. Hmm. Everything's on the up and up, 
and like they yeah. have an internal agency that they could report to and all the stuff in place. <sighs> yeah. They agree the police findings. They agree with the police findings that the murder was because of this quote-unquote relationship. And most officials tried to chalk this up to Jayashri's character as sort of like a seductress almost, like trying to push this guy into marrying her. Hmm. H&M did not seem to have any direct knowledge or involvement in these practices, and they've issued statements saying that they will continue to work with Eastman Exports as the claims are being investigated. Hmm. Hmm. It's not great. No. Up to 25 women most of which anonymously reported, um, who've worked at Nachi, have come forward saying that they have faced sexual harassment and gender caste-based violence and discrimination at work. Yeah. They also say that there's no complaint systems in place at the factory. The factory has 90% female employees, most of which are delete, and 90% of the supervisors who act with impunity against them are male. Mm-hmm. They are restricted access to water and bathroom breaks outside of a 15-minute window of a day. And they're often pressured to make over 1,000 garments each per shift. And what—remind me, like, it's all kinds of stuff for H&M? Like, or were they making one specific thing? It just says that they make clothes for H&M. So I'm not sure if it's any particular, you know, brand or branch or what, but— Tell me again how many? Over 1,000 pieces per day. Her I, okay, listen, I can sew okay. I'm not amazing at it, but I can sew p- pretty well. There's not a chance I could make that many things in a day. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine in one shift, and especially a night shift, You and if they're getting faulty products, can you imagine? I, I couldn't even <sighs> imagine a, a fraction of that amount. Right, yeah. Also... They're usually promised an annual bonus about upon being hired, but fired before the first year. Uh, wow. Most of them make about 80 pounds uh, in, uh, where I don't know where pounds are. I guess that's a lot of Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They make about 80 pounds per month, which in dollars is about $108 per month. $108 for an entire month's worth of work mm-hmm. making, again, Thousands. did you say 1500 things per they're they're pushed to make up to a thousand garments per day that is so like and to think about what those garments must retail for that it's got to be at least like for h&m like 20 30 dollars and so if they're making that much on each of those it is so exploitative of their labor insanely insanely and like people always joke about h&m clothes being like cheaply made but cheap to buy yeah and yeah there we go yeah, it's fast fashion. Yeah, Have you heard exactly. that? Exactly, yeah. yes. So these accusations are, of course, denied by Nachi and Eastman Exports. And even today, after investigations and reports have been published by both entities, they still dispute all of these claims. But mm, there's okay. so much evidence against it. Mm-hmm. The case drew international media coverage due to tireless efforts of organizations such as the TTCU, which is the Tamil Nadu Textile and Common Labor Union. Okay. And this is a volunteer grassroots female-founded group fighting for the voiceless and vulnerable women laborers in the textile industry. Working with the family, the TTCU, have exposed countless and grotesque incidents of poor and abusive work conditions for the women workers and elite laborers in the industry. Mm-hmm. And they've been able to draw a lot of media attention to this case. They shared the following statement from Jayashri's mother. 
She was the first in our family to have a chance of having a life outside the garment factories. My daughter told me she was being tortured at work. I do not want other people's daughters to suffer the same fate. The Guardian is one of the organizations, uh, the media organizations, who have published multiple articles in support of Jayashri's family and the Delete mm-hmm. community. And they report from one employee at Nachi, when we try to complain about inappropriate behavior from our supervisors, the senior management also tells us this is how working conditions are in a garment factory, and that our role is only to come to the factory, finish our work, take our salary, and leave. Hmm. Not surprising. Right. They even obtained footage, the Guardian, of 50 men from Eastman Exports on January 29th, the same month Jayashi's body is found, forcing their way into her village and into her family uh. home, pressuring her mother to sign paperwork, forcing her to accept financial compensation and essentially keep her mouth shut. After she was dead. Yeah. So, like, stop talking and complaining. We'll give you some money exactly. to make this all go away. Exactly. Okay. And I don't have the amount of money, but it was not a lot. Not that it matters anyway. And right. the event actually led to Jayashi's mother being hospitalized and <sighs> due to overwhelming stress and fear for her and her family's life. Not surprisingly. Well, no. Yeah. A mob of 50 men coming into your village unexpectedly, trying to force you to, to sign a paper. Terrifying. Eastman Exports issued a statement about this, saying... We understand that this outreach may have created the impression of us pressuring or influencing the deceased employee's family. Outreach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) We have instructed all of our management staff and persons representing Eastman to put on hold any outreach for now. Outreach. Outrage is more like it. (laughs) Honestly. So the TTCU, who H&M have been cooperative with despite Eastman Exports not being at all cooperative with them. Mm -hmm. They held a global summit in April, I think it was April 21st of this year, to honor the legacy legacy of Jayashri and her beliefs Mm -hmm. that everyone should feel safe at work and not have to fear for retaliation if they have any concerns. Yeah. The two-hour summit can be viewed on Facebook. Um, I'll share the link in, um, in whatever I can on our social media, on our website. And I just want to share some takeaways I got from it, from watching it. Okay. Much of it was moderated by a woman named Ananya Bhattacharjee. And she's the international coordinator at AFWA, which stands for Asia Floor Wage Alliance. Okay. She said of Jayashree, from a small village as a young Dalit woman, she has electrified us across the globe, compelling us to make sure that her death speaks louder than her life. Some data I got from the summit was that 40,000 cases are registered against Dalits annually. 40,000 mm. complaints are registered annually, but nothing is ever done about any of them. Sorry, d- you said against, but do you mean by Dalits? Against I guess the other... uh, cases are registered by Dalits, but it, they re- say against because it's like discrimination against Dalits. Oh, oh got it, got it, okay. And when international and the uh, the following information is from the general secretary on the national campaign for delete human rights. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what she's uh, what I this is all paraphrased. But when international brands come to India, they don't look at the fact that caste plays a really important role. They don't look at like how demographics work over there. They just come in. They just set up a factory and set up a factory and exploit female workers. Yeah. The lower-level jobs are given to delete women. According to her, their bodies are treated as though they have no rights. And if a case comes up where there's complaints, 
the immediate reaction is to assassinate their character. Mm-hmm. She says it happens in every case, almost every day. And for some reason, despite these companies coming in internationally and expecting all of these things from these laborers, there are mm-hmm. no international standards for human rights. Mm. The companies mm-hmm. profit from caste-based discrimination, and there's no yep. mechanism in place for victims and survivors to go when they want to complain or seek justice. Yep. From Mariam Diwali, the General Secretary of All India Democratic Women's Association, she says, mm-hmm. quote, 90% of the employees for Nachi are women and 90% of the supervisors are men. Why have mm-hmm. they not answered to this? TTCU mm-hmm. is not being recognized by Eastman Apparels, and there are laws in place in India against sexual harassment, but we have a regime in power who, in fact, reiterate the regressive ideology that a women's place is in, at home and that women who go out to work are going to be victims of violence. Yeah. Not only have they formed labor codes to divest the working class from all of its rights, but it also protects the culprits who commit violence towards women. Mm-hmm. The summit, as I said, was held um, with help from the TTCU, who, along with support by many other international organizations, have formed the Justice for Jayashri campaign. Mm. They are calling for global solidarity and fight for reform for the garment workers in India with the GLJ, which is the Global Global Labor (laughs) Justice, a little tongue twister Mm -hmm. there. From their website, the Justice for Jayashri campaign is led by a coalition of international unions, labor groups, and gender justice organizations in honor of Jayashri Khetrival. And they describe her as a young Indian Dalit woman garment worker and union member who is organizing against gender-based violence and harassment at a major Indian garment manufacturer that applies to American and European fashion brands. Mm-hmm. The fight is still ongoing. Um, there's a change.org petition that needs, I think, about a few hundred more signatures to reach the you know, the gener- general 450 that they try to get. Um, mm-hmm. I'll share that on our social media as well. And I've reached out to the campaign via email, expressing our support for them and letting them know that we're going to feature this case in an episode. And I've asked them to reach out if there's anything specific that they think would be most impactful for listeners to do Mm -hmm. um, who want to help or do anything for the case. And if there's anything about Jayashri they'd like us to share to sort of humanize her for folks who, Mm -hmm. you know, might see this as just a name in the news. Yeah. So um, if or when I hear back from them, I'll be sharing that in upcoming episodes. Nice. The last update I have for the case is that in early April, I think it was actually April 1st, the AFWA, which I mentioned before, they announced that Jayashri's family has reached an agreeable compensation settlement from Eastman Exports, but the campaign is still fighting for major reform for further investigation into Nachi Apparel, among a list of other demands for both H&M and Eastman Exports. Yeah. A list of these can be found on the UK Justice for Jayashri website. And I want to end with a quote from her mother um, from the Global Summit. She says, My daughter was thrown into the bush as a street dog. The factory never showed concern. As a mother, I don't want this to happen to any daughter, any worker. Because I lost a beautiful daughter, I could never get back. I consider all the workers as my daughters. And the incident that happened to my daughter should never, ever happen to any other worker. And that is the tragic and still ongoing story of the murder, abduction of Jayashri Kathravel and the sort of fight for justice for 
all Dalit women and and really garment workers in general. I mean, this isn't just right, right. Uh, secluded to India. This is where no, no. a lot of it's happening for for the purposes of this. But I mean, I mean, it's it's literally happening in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like it, it's literally everywhere. Oy. And it's such, the, the, her story is such like a perfect example of um, Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality that like the oppression she experienced was this intersection of both her status of a, as a woman and also the caste system that allowed for these things to happen to her and will allow for them to continue to happen to other women who are in that same cast category because the the system of power allows for that abuse to happen yeah it's heartbreaking because you hear uh, in the summit there i mean it's it's two hours long it's a lot of information a lot of people from across the globe a lot of organizations in, in america in indonesia in africa all over the place are supporting this campaign and mm-hmm. so but it just speaks to how widespread this is an issue and yeah. even though you know like I read that there's all these systems in place and laws against caste-based discrimination and gender-based violence, there's nothing in place to enforce it. I mean, if you're working in an organization where the perpetrator of the violence against you and the abuse against you is the people that you would report to, who do you report to? And all of them fear retaliation. Like in all the articles, most of the people who come forward have had to be anonymous because they all fear for retaliation and they need these jobs. Like... They don't have any other options because as people who identify or who are identified as Dalit, they don't have a lot of options. Yeah. And all of them have to work, you know, and they go to work with the expectation that they will be abused. And that's just how it is. Somebody somewhere said this, and it's a, a quote that sticks in my mind, and I wish I could attribute it to someone specific, that what you were saying is like the people that they would report that issue to are the people who are abusing them. And somebody had this like perfect way of encapsulating that saying that, you know, those kinds of mechanisms are like going to the source of your illness for a cure. Right. Right. Like that, that's not going to work. So yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So I mean, great job. Thank you. I mean, it's just very, uh, up, upsetting i mean of course it's upsetting but it's upsetting to know that this episode of law and order was from 1991 1992 and it is this case the story of jayashri is from this year and what's changed very little what's changed except for the location Mm -hmm. and people don't hear about it because it's in india it's a woman in india who even in her own community is looked at as, like, the lowest level of person for no right. reason. For no reason. Right. And so how does that get any sort of coverage on a, on a global level? I'm glad it has. Yeah. Um, but it, it means I need, it needs a lot more, hopefully, by people for who sure. are more equipped to talk about it than I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did a great job researching it, so thank, good job. Thank you so much. And, again, if I've, if I've uh, misspoken at all and anyone out there has more information please feel free to let us know and we'll we'll share it we'll share it in a further yes. episode we're always happy to make any corrections in a future episode yeah trying i'm trying to learn so help me <laughs> help me <laughs> um what do you what would you rate the episode for watchability and then how it relates to the topic watchability i'm gonna give it 
an F because <laughs> I thought it was bad. Like it was, it was a convoluted storyline that they just like had to wrap up with some weird mass grave story thing at the end. And they said really offensive things that nobody ever like questioned mm-hmm. and they didn't ever like trouble any of the stereotypical depictions of anyone. So F for the show, um, for how it dealt with the topic. I mean, it showed a bit about the exploitation of garment workers, but did it like it, it in a lot of ways it like it wasn't about them. Like they didn't we never learned a thing about Eduardo or Maria. It yeah. was only about the story of these people who were doing the exploiting. We still got nothing about the people's lives who are impacted by this exploitation. Yeah. So, oh, so all that's to say, D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to agree, I think, on both. I think watchability, total F, um, not an interesting episode. A lot of terrible, terrible stereotypes and yeah. really unnecessary, like, language and violence. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah so total F there. And then crime, I'm going to give it a D as well, because while it did, quote-unquote, shine a light on the the garment industry and, uh, you know, illegal operations and poor worker conditions. I mean, less than yeah. poor worker conditions in the episode. But, um, yeah, the, it was just sort of the context for murder. It had nothing to do with the people. Right, exactly. Yeah, so... Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, and if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too, the very best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to our episodes, or feel free to do it on all of them, because that's the number one way that other people can find our podcast and enjoy it along with you. That's right. And the best way for other people to find the podcast is through word of mouth. So tell a friend, post about it on Reddit, uh, find other ways to spread the word. Yeah. We also love connecting with our listeners, so feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And while you're online, head over to rippedheadlinespod.com and you'll find a link to our Patreon there, as well as our new merch store. Yes, and speaking of Patreon, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you are also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye!